Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 61, Andrew Hayashi, A Theory of Facts and Circumstances. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Andrew Hayashi. Andrew is professor of law at the University of Virginia School of Law, where he teaches tax, international tax, and a law and economics colloquium. Our podcast today features Andrew's new article, A Theory of Facts and Circumstances, which was published in the Alabama Law Review. Unsurprisingly, given that Andrew is a tax scholar, the article focuses primarily on tax issues. In particular, the paper deals with how tax law determines taxpayer intent, which is through so-called facts and circumstances. Whether a transfer is considered a gift for tax purposes depends on the transferor's intent, but a fact finder can only determine intent through inferences from various facts and circumstances. Even passing familiarity with tax law makes us aware that pre-specifying what facts and circumstances count for the purposes of this analysis will invariably lead to strategic behavior. Yet not pre-specifying will also lead to uncertainty and other wasteful behavior. Andrew explores what kinds of facts and circumstances should count, in tax law and perhaps elsewhere, as well as when the law should pre-specify what counts, and when it should not. Andrew, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Your article is entitled, A Theory of Facts and Circumstances. So just to introduce your article, can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by facts and circumstances and the problem that you're trying to address in the paper? The situation or the problem that I have in mind is one that, that comes up surprisingly often in tax law. I mean, I think to the layperson, they think if you buy something, if you sell something, you engage in some transaction, then the tax consequences, we know what they're going to be. But it turns out actually a lot of tax consequences depend on something that the law can't see, like your intentions, for example. Intentions matter a lot in tax law, whether you bought something because you enjoy it or you spent the money solely to earn additional income or whether you engage in a transaction just to avoid taxes or whether you had a legitimate business purpose. So what I call private information of the taxpayer matters a lot. The problem, of course, is that the IRS and the courts don't know where the taxpayer's intentions are, and so they have to figure it out from the surrounding facts and circumstances. So they look at, at how the taxpayer conducted her affairs, what she was doing, just sort of all of the activities, the things she said that surrounded her activity as a way of trying to figure out what her intentions were. And so the problem is that when courts do this, different courts arrive at different results. This inquiry about trying to draw an inference about a taxpayer's intentions from the facts around her decisions is, at least in tax law, almost entirely unstructured. There's very little guidance given to courts from the statute of the regulations. And courts themselves very rarely give reasons for singling out the facts and circumstances they do. And so uh, my project is about 
trying to provide some structure to that inquiry, give courts some guidance about which facts they should pick out when trying to draw a reliable inference about taxpayers' intentions. And then I take up a second question about whether those facts should be identified ex ante or in advance in the statute and regulations, or we should leave it up to courts just to interpret taxpayers' behavior. You mentioned this in the article. The second piece is related to the rules versus standards problem. You've emphasized a particular aspect of it, which is strategic behavior. And I think that is particularly salient in the tax context. So it's not just the usual problem of over and under inclusive rules, but strategic behavior. Whereas standards, on the other hand, provide the usual flexibility, but at the cost of uncertainty. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And probably a more more parsimonious way of putting it is that in the tax context, the problem is intentions matter and we can't observe them. And two, taxpayers behave strategically. They anticipate or they plan for how courts are going to interpret their conduct. And so there's sort of this whack-a-mole problem or what you call sort of a cat and mouse problem between the IRS and the taxpayer, where the IRS would like to provide guidance to people. But as soon as they do, taxpayers will take that guidance and structure their affairs in a way to get the results they want. So these two things, the importance of intentions and the importance of strategic behavior are at the core of the problem I'm focused on. Now, the problem that you identify, and you mentioned this a little bit in your paper, but you don't explore it a lot, I think the problem you identify is broader than tax, that it extends to other spheres. You suggest criminal law possibilities or contract possibilities. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the problem extends? Well, uh, (laughs) I'm a little bit reluctant sometimes to do that because tax is really what I know best. But in any setting, and it's going to be more common where you have relatively sophisticated people who are thinking ahead because the strategic aspect is central to the problem. When you have somebody who's doing something and the legal consequences of their activity are going to depend on their intentions and they're forward-looking enough to plan and try and do things in such a way that they'll get a favorable interpretation from the lawmaker. That's where it's going to come up. And in criminal law, I mean, this is one place where the uh, hot-blooded crime example doesn't work very well. You you can imagine a homicide, and the question is, well, is it first degree or second degree or involuntary manslaughter, where the defendant's intentions are irrelevant in determining that? That may be a kind of a different situation. We're not worried about strategic behavior quite as much. But I think in settings where you have sophisticated tax players who are planning what to do in, in sort of a sober frame of mind, tax being really just the examples I know best, that's where it's going to come up the most. So I'm sorry, I, I don't have a good example from the contract space. I think it's fair enough, right? So what we're talking about here is context where you have sophisticated actors that are acting in a pre-planned way so that whether they actually know the law does in fact change their behavior. Okay, let me try to broaden this in a different way then. A lot of the discussion that you talk about is about intent, mm-hmm. right, which features prominently. It seems to me that this problem might apply more broadly to other inquiries where basically any inference is required as long as you have that sophisticated actor. Yeah, I think, I guess I'd say two things. So one, again, the core of the problem is really private information of the regulated party and strategic behavior. And so that private information could be intentions, but it could be anything else as well. So intentions are what I focus on again, because they're so prominent in the tax context, but it's not necessarily limited to that. So tell us a little bit about your solution. How do we solve this puzzle of facts and circumstances? Well, the proposal is 
really a pretty straightforward application of information economics and, and game theory. So the problem, and then that, that comes from a literature where, if I can just take a short digression, a classic example is one of education. You can imagine an employer who wants to distinguish between very productive workers and workers who are less productive. They can't observe the workers' productivity. And so one thing they might do is make the workers' wage or a job offer contingent on something like education. Why would you make it contingent on education? Well, if education is much easier for high productivity workers to engage in or to obtain, then you can sort of distinguish between high and low productivity workers on the basis of whether they've attained a certain level of education or not. And so it's really just taking that basic insight, which already appears in the tax literature quite a bit, over to these facts and circumstances inquiries. So the idea is, well, look, if you have certain individuals who have, let's stick with the example of intentions. You have legal consequences that turn on an individual's intentions and you more favorable consequences for somebody with, let's just call them good intentions. You can't observe the intentions, so make the more favorable consequences depend on certain behaviors or activities that are much easier for people with the good intentions to engage in. The example I give, and it's kind of a, a goofy one, is tax contacts again whether a transfer of money or property is treated as a gift depends on the transferor's intentions. So, Ed, if I gave you a computer as a gift, whether it would be taxable to you or not depends on whether it came from my detached and disinterested generosity. We can't observe that. And so what courts need to do is look at, well, when I gave you the computer, what kinds of things was was I doing? What was the nature of our relationship? Did you write me a thank you card or something like that? And so what I want to argue is that the facts and circumstances that should go into making that judgment should be ones that we should only focus on the activities that are reliable proxies for the transferor's intent. They're the kinds of things that only somebody with a spirit of generosity would engage in. And in practice, where the rubber meets the road, it can be sometimes difficult to identify exactly what those activities are going to be. But the principle that we should use for identifying those facts should be exactly that. We should focus on those facts that are, uh, or those activities that are easier for people with the better intention to engage in. So my solution is, is to just lay out that principle for identifying relevant facts. There's the follow-on question is, if the only facts that should be taken into account are ones that are more costly for people with the disfavored intentions to engage in, then we have the question, well, should we write down what those facts are in the statute and regulations so the taxpayers have access to them? Or should we give courts this principle to use in interpreting uh, individuals' behavior? And ultimately, I come out arguing the, the latter. Let me just cut you off for a minute, and let me go back to the first piece, sure. and then we'll tackle the second piece in a minute. The first thing that I thought was really interesting about the screening principle that you developed, that you want to use facts that are easier for the people with the good intent to produce, is that you can port this over to the evidentiary context by looking at it through what's essentially a Bayesian perspective, that the facts that you want to focus on are like evidence or pieces of evidence that have a high likelihood ratio, that you don't want to be concerned with facts that are simply highly associated with the inference you're looking for. That would just look at, well, is it that when you're giving a gift, you are likely to produce a thank you note? What you really want is the ratio that the fact has to be highly associated with the true inference, but highly disassociated for the false inference or the mimic. 
the thank you note is a really bad factor because it's easy and cheap for everyone mm -hmm. to do it. And so you can have mimicry in that context. And that works the same way in terms of evidence is that you don't want evidence that is easy to produce or easy to find whether a particular fact is true or not true. You want evidence that is highly associated with a fact that you're looking for and then highly not associated with the negative of that fact. Yeah, that's great. I think the only thing I would add to that is that in calculating those likelihoods, because the strategic aspect is important here, it's not a good idea to just sort of look out in the world and try and observe who's giving th writing thank you notes and who isn't. You need to take into account that that behavior about thank you note writing is itself a response to whatever the rules are. And so there's a statistical aspect to it. It's also important for whoever's making the rules to be taking into account, again, that response, that mimicking behavior. Because what you observe in some of the tax cases I talk about is what look like, looks to me like courts relying on their experience about what kind of happens in the world. And it might be, we tend to observe that thank you notes are written at a high rate among people both who are receiving gifts and who are not. But the reason for that is a response to the fact that they're, for example, if they were being used by courts in order to give treatment. So there's sort of an incentive compatibility aspect to this, as well as the, the statistical side of things. When you look out at the tax law, is the law doing a good job of picking out these principles? One of the examples you raise in the paper is about hobby losses. This is uh, about whether or not an activity that you engage in is actually a hobby, which would not be deductible, or trying to generate some kind of income, in which case it would be deductible. It seemed to me that you were a bit unhappy with the factors that courts have been using and that this is just encouraging a whole bunch of strategic behavior and that maybe there are better ways of doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I am unhappy with a lot of the factors that are listed in, in the regulations. And one thing I guess I'd want to say is you mentioned earlier that when we're sort of setting out where this problem arises, it's with sophisticated actors. It, it's true of sophisticated actors, but strategic behavior also comes from even unsophisticated actors who are well advised. So the hobby loss context is an interesting one, right? So we're talking about people who engage in very frequently, it's things like raising horses, <laughs> or it could be painting or photography, activities that could plausibly be engaged in either for profit or for hobby. This is where the problem is really cute. And a lot of people doing this are not necessarily themselves super sophisticated. But what you have is you have communities of people who are sharing information about, well, how to conduct that activity if you want to get a deduction. The kinds of things you need to do in order to persuade the IRS that you're engaged in it for profit. And then you have lawyers who will also advise people about, again, how to do these things in such a way that you can deduct your expenses. So the people themselves... This is a problem when people are sophisticated or when there are other actors who can help help them and hurt the fisc, uh, but help them sort of share information about how to game the system, if I, if I can put it that way. The statute provides a very, very it's, it's a standard. So activities that are not engaged in for profit, your deductions are, are limited. But then the regulations under the statute, under Section 183, provide a list of factors and I go through them, there are, I believe, eight or nine factors, one by one, and argue that many of them fail to satisfy 
my screening principle and that somebody who's engaged in photography, either for profit or for pleasure, would find it equally easy to, to do their photography in this way. So, for example, you know, if you're a hobbyist photographer, it's quite easy for you to set up a website where you could purport to sell your photos or to even organize an LLC or something like that. If that's all it takes in order to make your expenses deductible, we would expect that a lot of people would do it. These aren't very good screening factors. There are two that I think taken in conjunction do satisfy this screening principle. So individuals who tend to, ha who tend to spend a lot of time on an activity who are also very wealthy, that activity does not itself generate a lot of income. This is the kind of behavior that is going to be very costly for somebody who does not have a profit motive. These are, these are, these are factors that sort of taken together, I think are pretty good indicia of, of having something other than a business purpose. And they don't figure very prominently in the regulations. Now, you asked if anyone sort of figured this out. And I think if you look at the number of private rulings that individuals have received, they get them from the IRS or, or cases that actually make it to court, courts never, they virtually never give reasons for focusing on the facts that they do. But there is a commonality when you do see people, wealthy individuals who spend a lot of time engaging in an activity that's not generating a lot of income, that tends to be, I think, I don't want to say dispositive, but it's a, I think courts have sort of stumbled upon this sort of conjunction as factors as, as a really good indication of whether there's a profit motive or not. So there is something reassuring here that I think this principle makes sense. And I do think you see case law or, or courts sort of fumbling toward it. So part of what I'm hoping to do in, the, in this paper is to, is to make this explicit. Now let's move to that second part that I cut you off on. What you present is a screening principle that tells us what factors we should use. And that's true whether or not you disclose those factors ahead of time. And then your paper moves and talks about when we should actually disclose them, when we should specify the factors either ex ante versus ex post. How do you come out on that question? I stake what's a little bit of a middle ground. So the, the problem with trying to identify, and if, if we can stick with the hobby loss example for a minute, the problem with trying to identify all the factors beforehand is just, I mean, imagine how long the regulations would have to be to list the factors that would be taken into account determining whether a photographer and a painter, somebody who raises horses, all the different kinds of hobbies that someone could have, all the factors that would be taken into account in determining whether somebody had a the profit motive or not. And that would be a rule, you know, if we were to enumerate all of the factors taken into account beforehand, that would be, it just seems to me prohibitively costly. And so I sort of would reject a rule for these kinds of tests, or at least specifically in the case of, in the case I talk about of hobby losses. On the other hand, I think we can do a little bit better than just the standard that's in the statute, which is if you're not engaged in the activity for profit, then you don't get to take the deductions. Well, and how can we do a little bit better than that? I think by giving courts and taxpayers at the same time the principle by which they should choose the facts that they're going to use to determine whether there's a profit motive, we do a little bit better than a mere standard. So at, at the very least, courts wouldn't have unfettered discretion about which facts they take into account. They need to at least try and run them through this principle and see whether they are in fact more costly for people without a profit motive than the people with a profit motive, which reduces some of the uncertainty for the taxpayer and some of the variation you would get across courts and how the test is applied. So I call that a, a principled standard. It's just we would I would leave in place the standard, no deduction if you're not engaged in the activity for profit, 
But here's the principle that courts will use in interpreting your conduct to determine if you're engaged in the activity for profit. It's not anything goes. Whatever facts the court takes into account have to be run through this principle. Final question for you. What's next? Are there future papers in this sphere that you're planning, or is this your one foray into this link between tax and evidence? Well, actually, so this last part of the paper about the difference between rules and standards, I'm developing that and actually in a current paper, sort of formalizing some of the arguments that I make in the paper, more of a formal economic analysis of of the things that I argue in, in that paper. At core of both tax and a lot of economics is this information asymmetry problem about trying to draw inferences about what motivates people and, and designing institutions and rules that take that into account. And so that's a, just something I continue to be interested in. And, and so this next stage of the project is about formalizing this last part of the paper in a more sort of math, mathematical economic framework. Well, Andrew, thanks for the fascinating discussion on facts and circumstances. Really interesting to be able to link evidence and proof with problems in tax law here. Great having you on the show. Thank you very much. One issue that has long bothered me in evidence is that we have very few formal rules about inference. Some of this is a function of our jury system. Given that it's a black box, we have the luxury of dumping all the evidence in the jury's lap and leaving the jury to its own devices. But is this the smart thing to do? Are there specific inferences that we want the jury to make? Or perhaps less prescriptively, Is there any guidance that we want to provide fact-finders as they sift through the mountains of evidence and make their decisions? Other legal systems, often ones where judges sit as fact-finders and articulate reasons for their decisions, these systems often have precedents governing proper inference. Should we? Andrew's paper gives us some interesting insights into this dilemma. His focus, of course, was the implementation of tax law, what kinds of observable, factual proxies, these facts and circumstances, should be used to infer hidden facts like intent. But as I suggested in the interview, we can port that over to evidence and proof. What kinds of observable evidence should we use or prefer to use in making inferences about material facts? And let me be clear, this is not an admissibility question. That's resolved by the relevance rule. This is rather a question of improving inference after evidence has been admitted. Andrew offers two useful insights. First, we should focus on that likelihood ratio. Powerful evidence discriminates between a fact and its absence. It's not enough that evidence is highly associated with a particular fact. You need to compare it to its association with the absence of that fact. Second, in deciding whether to make the inference rules or the inference guidance known, you have to worry a lot about strategic behavior. The more sophisticated, informed, or deliberate the conduct, arguably the less you want to make the inferential rules known. I suspect we won't have another tax piece on this podcast for some time, but I'm sure glad we had the opportunity to talk to Andrew about his paper. It certainly demonstrates the fruitfulness of reaching across disciplines. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. 
The associate producer is Alex Nunn. And the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza and Megan Cole. And music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.